You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. So I show my love for him by loving you because that's what he's told me to do. Love those, love one another. So I show my love for Jesus Christ by loving you because he's commanded me to do this. But fortunately for me, this is very easy because you're all so darn lovable. You are all so lovable, I can't stand it. So it's easy for me to show God's love to you because of the love that you show back and you're all just so wonderfully lovable. You have heard this before. I love God with all my heart. I just don't like people at my church. Today, Pastor Dave will show us just how impossible this is. You can't say that you love God and say that you don't love his people. In fact, as we just heard, we show that we love God when we love his people. Now here's Pastor Dave in the book of John chapter nine as he begins his message. Orphans no more. You are Jesus is still speaking now. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come. So as we read through the scriptures, as you go through the scriptures, especially the the gospels and you get into the book of Acts, we often make the mistake of thinking the disciples are superhuman. I mean, you see these beautiful stained glass windows and, ooh, they're so holy and they're so pious. And we kind of put them on a pedestal. Well, We somehow think they're different than the rest of us. But when you examine the scriptures further and you see what goes on in their lives and how they act, you'll find that they're not much different than we are. They're not really much different. They're ordinary people who were subject to the same weaknesses, subject to the same struggles and shortcomings that we are. The truth of the matter is they're just like you and I. So what was the difference? What made the difference in these men's and women's lives? Well, for one thing, they had seen Jesus physically. They had been with Jesus physically. They spent three years with him. And I wonder what they thought when they heard him speak. I wonder what they saw when they looked into his eyes, when they closely examined him. You know, while Jesus was on earth, he represented the Father to man. And he did it perfectly. Remember, we studied a couple weeks ago. Philip said, show us the Father. And Jesus said clearly, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus was God in the flesh. He he was the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And at first, the disciples didn't understand this. They really didn't grasp this main fact. But over time, they began to realize that as they walked down the road with Jesus, they were strolling with God the Father. Eventually, they saw that when they laid their hand upon Jesus' shoulder, they were touching God. 
They recognized when Jesus talked to them, they were hearing the very words of God. And they understood that when Jesus had compassion on those who were sick, they got a glimpse into the heart of God who looks at people and wants to make wrongs right. When Jesus made and fashioned the whip and went through the the temple and driving out the money changers, they saw a determination of God to bring purity to a house of worship. And finally, when they saw Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, when they saw Jesus crying over Jerusalem because the people had failed to understand that salvation had come to them, the opportunity that God had given them, they watched as God's heart broke. During those three and a half years, they never worried about a thing. They never had to worry about a thing. I mean, after all, Jesus provided everything they needed. He fed them and thousands of others. He never let their boat sink in the storm, and he always knew the best place to fish, didn't he? He even helped them pay their taxes. He taught them daily, giving them example after example. He probed their minds with parables. He amazed them with miracles. He taught them constantly about the kingdom of God. He prayed with them, and he prayed for them. He gave them commandments to follow. He even sent them out and gave them authority to heal the sick and cast out demons. Day in and day out, these men relied on Jesus for every single thing they could think of. So you can imagine the fear that overcame them when Jesus all of a sudden says, I'm leaving. The fear that overcame them, what are we going to do? They didn't understand what he meant. All they heard was he was leaving. But his words disturbed them greatly. They didn't want him to go. Their hearts were filled with fear and turmoil. Their hearts were troubled. What would they do? What would they become? Would they be like orphans and wander aimlessly about the countryside? And this is what they were afraid of. They didn't want to be left as helpless orphans. They couldn't bear the thought that he might leave them, even though he had been preparing them since day one. He had been preparing them all along that he would eventually leave and go back to the Father. But every time Jesus brought up the cross, they tried to change the subject. Every time he brought the cross and his suffering, they tried to change the subject. But now they're thinking, what are we going to do without him? What are we going to do without Jesus bodily? He's no longer here. And as we've been studying chapter 14, Jesus has been trying to quell their fears. He's been trying to calm them down. Let not your hearts be troubled, he said. You believe in God, believe also in me. He sees the panic in their eyes. He sees the fear that's overwhelming them that he's going to be leaving soon. And he knows that in a very, very short time, in mere hours, every one of them except one would either deny him or head for the hills and run away. He knows that. He knows there's going to be trouble. So as we come to our verses this morning, we come to a pivotal point in the Gospel of John. A pivotal point. I told you before that chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17 are hugely important to the Christian. They're mostly all red letters because Jesus is speaking most of the time. These are pivotal and crucial chapters. And that's why I didn't want to go sidetrack and and come with another topical message because I thought if we're going to look at this, we're going to see our true Father in heaven. So in verse 15, Jesus continues his talk and he's still answering Philip. 
And he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. It's interesting to me that the emphasis was on love for each other and faith in Jesus Christ. This would be a demonstration of obedience. Remember, Jesus said to them, I'm going to give you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. A new commandment I give to you. So how do we know we love Jesus? Well, according to what he says, by keeping his commandments. We know that we love him by keeping his commandments. But we don't always do that, do we? I mean, Jesus even scolded them in Luke 6, 46, when he says, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? This warning that Jesus is giving to the people here in Luke applies to people who speak or say things about Jesus, but don't really mean it. They, they simply say words superficially. Their mind is elsewhere. They believe that there is value in bare words and fulfilling some kind of religious duty, but they're missing out. These are just passing thoughts. They're really not saying this. I love what Guzik says about this, quote, for the believer, disobedience is not only a failure of performance and a failure of strength. In some cases, it's also a failure of love. Those who love God must obey him most joyfully and naturally. To say, I really love Jesus, I just don't want to do what he tells me to do for my life, is a terrible misunderstanding of both Jesus and the love you have for him, unquote. So our obedience to Jesus should be done out of love for him. Our obedience to him should be done out of love for him. So I show my love for him by loving you, because that's what he's told me to do. Love those, love one another. So I show my love for Jesus Christ by loving you, because he's commanded me to do this. But fortunately for me, this is very easy, because you're all so darn lovable. You are all so lovable, I can't stand it. So it's easy for me to show God's love to you because of the love that you show back and you're all just so wonderfully lovable. <laughs> well, you are, come on, what do you mean? But Jesus doesn't stop there. If you'll notice, in, beginning in verse 16, he connects these two with the word and. He connects these 15 and 16 and 17 with the word and. And, let's read 16 and 17. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He's saying here, because you are keeping my commandments, you are truly mine. Because you're loving one another, you're truly mine. And since you're truly mine, I'm going to pray to the Father, and he's going to send you another helper, the Spirit of truth. The Father is going to do that. Now, here we come to some interesting Greek words. We're going to talk a lot about some Greek words this morning. The Greek word for helper is the same as the Greek word for comforter in the original King James. The word is parakletos. It means one who comes alongside to help. One who comes alongside to help. The Greek word for another is allos, meaning one exactly the same. Allos. You can say another and not mean exactly the same. This allos means exactly the same. So what was Jesus telling them? He was saying, yeah, I have to go. Yeah, 
I'm leaving and you can't follow right now. But don't worry. Don't fret. I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm not going to leave you without comfort. I'm not going to leave you without help. I'm going to pray to the Father, and he's going to send you a helper, a comforter. The Father will send you another one just like me. He will be with you forever. What a great promise. What a wonderful promise of the Father. What a wonderful promise. What's this comforter's name? The Spirit of Truth. It's the Holy Spirit. So here we have the promise of the Holy Spirit to the believer. And looking through the Gospel of John, John continues to clarify these very words. In fact, in verse 26, in the same chapter 14, John says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom my Father will send in my name. He says in in chapter 15, verse 26, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceeds from the Father. Again, in chapter 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's necessary that I go away, for if I go away, the Comforter will not come. If I don't go away, the Comforter will not come. What I find really interesting about these verses is that there's a clear focus on the triune nature of God. You have a beautiful picture of the Trinity right before us. You have Jesus praying to the Father who's going to send the Holy Spirit. In the same token, Jesus is promising the Holy Spirit to come from the Father. Do You see this beautiful picture of the Trinity right before us. And what's happening here? (laughs) Well, Jesus is simply replacing himself with a person that has exactly the same qualities that he has. So basically, Jesus is replacing himself with him. He's replacing himself with him. Same qualities, same characteristics, same attributes, but in a different format, in a different form. So I guess we need to answer the question, what does the Holy Spirit do? What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, we know from his name, he's a comforter. He comes alongside us to bring comfort. He comes alongside us to bring comfort to us. And this is exactly what the disciples need right now. As I said, these disciples are in panic. They're in panic mode. They're really afraid. They don't know what's going to happen. But the Holy Spirit does a lot more than that. He teaches us all things and brings to remembrance the words of Jesus Christ. Have you ever been witnessing to somebody and all of a sudden a scripture comes out of your mouth and you go, whoa, where did that come from? Holy Spirit brings that to memory of the scriptures that you know to come out. The Holy Spirit does that when he glorifies Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit always testifies of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit does not testify of himself, does not bring glory to the person who has the Holy Spirit in him or her, but always brings glory to Jesus Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He reproves the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He guides us into all truth. He shows us all things. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. He shows us the things of the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit gives us the power we lack. The Holy Spirit gives us the power we lack. Acts 1 verse 8. And you will receive power after the Holy Spirit come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost portions of the world. The Greek word here for power is dunamis. Dunamis power, where we get our word dynamite. 
It's a dynamic power that is given to the believer, a power to live the Christian life, a power to resist temptation, a power to be his witnesses. Jesus now, in verse 17, tells us about relationship with the Holy Spirit, and he gives us two different relationships. Let's read 17b. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. We've talked about this before, but it's important that we repeat it in the context that it's given here. He uses two Greek prepositions here. In the first one, with, he uses the word para, and the second one, in, he uses the Greek word en, E-N. This is the first relationship we have with the Spirit, the with. What does he do? He convicts us of sin. He's with us all along, convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's testifying of Jesus Christ, testifying that Christ bore your sins on a cross and that you need to come to Christ for repentance. Come to Christ and be born again. You need to confess your sins. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. He guides you to the truth. He guides you into the arms of Jesus Christ. The second spirit, the second relationship is he will be in you. When you open your life to Jesus Christ, when you accept Jesus Christ into your life, believing in a sacrifice on the cross for your sins, you become born again by the Spirit. The Spirit then indwells you, comes inside. The Spirit now dwells within you. And there's a couple of scriptures here, specifically in um, Corinthians. In Corinthians 3, verse 16 says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. And then in 6.19, he basically says the same thing again. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, you are not your own? And then he repeats the same thought in Romans, in Romans 8, verse 9. He repeats the same thought. Romans 8, verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So, Spirit of God comes in you and dwells within you when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. But Calvary Chapel believes that there is another experience with the Holy Spirit. There's another experience with the Holy Spirit that comes along with it. And if you go back to the glorious chapter one of the book of Acts, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, and to ends of the earth. And here we have another preposition used for upon, and that's the epi, E-P-I, epi. The Spirit comes upon you with power. Some people call this the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus called it. That's what John the Baptist called it, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some people call it being filled with the Spirit. It don't matter what you call it, but I call it baptism because that's what Jesus called it. As long as you have it. It's one thing to have the Spirit dwelling in you. It's another thing to have the Spirit flowing out of your life where torrents of living waters, like Jesus preached in John 7. The Holy Spirit abides in the believer. He's a gift from the Father. He's the answer to Jesus' prayer. During his earthly ministry, Jesus guarded them. 
He guarded the disciples. He took care of them in every single way. He taught them. And now he would leave them. And the Spirit of God would come and dwell in their hearts to take the place of Jesus bodily. He said the world can't receive them. Why? Because he doesn't see them. See, the world lives by sight, not by faith. Everything we have, we have by faith in God. Everything we receive, we have by faith. I'm born again by faith. By grace through faith. I'm born again by faith. The Holy Spirit I have by faith. This was important. This was important. And then Jesus makes these final words. He says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Again, Greek words. The Greek word here is orphanos. Orphanos, which is where we get our word orphans. It means comfortless. He's saying, I won't leave you comfortless. I will come to you. You will have me. What a comfort this must have been for the disciples. What a comfort this must have been for those who are fearful and worried about them. This is the second time Jesus has said, I will come to you. They've known Jesus to be true. He says what he means and he means what he says. Maybe now they can face the next day because as you know, bad times are coming for these guys. Bad times are coming for these guys. Now remember, earlier we said that there was something different about these men and women. Something different about them. They were not superhumans, but there was something different about them. We said that the first thing that was different about them was they had been with Jesus physically. But the second thing that was different about them was they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit when they waited in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came upon them. If you look at it, look at disciples before the Holy Spirit came upon them and after the Holy Spirit came upon them. There's a drastic difference, folks. A drastic difference. A, a huge difference. They started to preach boldly. They started to not fear man. They, they were preaching the word of God with, with, with courage and boldness and enthusiasm. They didn't dilute the message regardless of what it cost them. Because it was the Holy Spirit in them, in fact, Scripture is clear about this. Under the direction of the Holy Spirit, these men, along with the Apostle Paul and the others who were there, Scripture says, turn the world upside down. They turned the world upside down. And if you want to look at it at God's point of view, they turned the world right side up. Because the world's pretty upside down as it is, but it becomes right side up when we give God the glory. Why? Because these men walked according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. They kept in mind the purposes of God, not the priorities of men. And they acted according to God's plans and God's method, not their own. Now what's sad, I think, about this is I believe that is one of the reasons why the church is not effective today. is because we're not relying on the Holy Spirit. We are not relying on the Holy Spirit to do what it needs, what he needs to do. Instead, we want to have programs. We want to take surveys. We want to have entertainment. We want to do this. We want to do that. Instead of depending totally upon the Spirit. You are We'd love to keep studying the Word of God with you again next time on Assure Hope. In the meantime, we invite you to learn more about this program by visiting our website, assurehoperadio.com. 
There, you'll find our archive of previous messages from Pastor Dave Shank, available to listen to, download, or even share with your friends and family, all free of charge. Just look under the Messages tab. You can listen to additional teachings from this series in John or jump to another book of the Bible. Each book gives some useful insight into God's plan for you and the world you live in. We trust that A Sure Hope is an encouraging program for you. And if you're without a church family, we'd love for you to join us. If you happen to be in the Cape May area, we'd love to meet you in person for a time of worship and Bible study right here at Calvary Chapel, Cape May. We meet weekly on Sunday at 10 a.m. And you can find all the information you need by visiting assurehoperadio.com. If you live further away or are unable to come in person, we understand. And we'd still love for you to be a part of our church family virtually. You can join us for church online through Facebook Live and on YouTube. Just follow the links that are available at AshoreHopeRadio.com. And don't forget to like and subscribe to keep up to date with the latest information. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Assure Hope.